This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today we're talking about a very controversial, current, and urgent topic in our democracy, but a topic with a long, long history. Uh, And this is, of course, the topic of race, uh, and in particular, the role of race in the evolving politics of the Midwest, a part of the uh, country that is always significant in choosing our national as well as state leaders, and a part of the country that's always the center of controversy if we think back to the period of Joseph McCarthy through the period of the conservative revolt uh, in the 1990s and 2000s uh, to our current moment with uh, racial Uh, protests and uh, violence against protesters uh, and others in uh, Wisconsin and, of course, uh, evidence of um, horrible police brutality in the shooting of Jacob Blake seven times by police uh, just a few days ago. Uh, Much of the country is focused on this part of uh, the state of Wisconsin right now. And we have with us, I think, one of the most thoughtful people I know, someone who brings a historical perspective, a personal perspective, and political activism uh, to these questions surrounding race and democracy in the Midwest. Uh, my former student, though now he's really my teacher, uh, <laughs> Steve Olacara. Steve has been on our uh, podcast uh, a few times before. He's one of our favorite guests. He is, as I hope everyone knows, the founder and president of the Millennial Action Project, which, as I've been writing about in many places, I think the Millennial Project is doing some of the most important work to bring young people into our political system across party lines and to get them involved in voting and becoming candidates themselves. Steve has a distinguished intellectual career, a distinguished academic career. Um, He's won numerous awards. The most important thing I want to stress today, though, is that he grew up the child of Indian immigrants in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And so what we're going to talk about today is obviously a topic he studied, but a topic he's lived so close to his heart and so close to his experiences. Uh, Steve, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Jeremy. It's always an honor to be on your show. And uh, we have with us, of course, to start out our discussion and set the scene, we have uh, Zachary Suri's A Scene Setting Poem. What's the title of your poem, Zachary? A Recollection of the Discoverers. Well, let's start recollecting. When Black Hawk led his people to war across the plains of the Wisconsin, careened himself into history as one of the last resistors, The man determined not to give way, given up to amateur hockey logos and silly stickers on sidewalks. He was just an American discovering the ways of America. When my great-grandfather crossed the sea from Hungary and landed feet first in Detroit, crawled achingly towards Traverse City to sell from a cart to the native peoples, and then found himself a gas lamp salesman in Chicago, he was just a Jew discovering America. When Harold Washington came up from the Deep South into the slums of South Chicago as a child, made his way to Congress and breathed mournful breaths in the heavy streets, mayor of the Midwest, preacher of the promised future, he was dying, dead of a heart attack, and driven peacefully to his grave under more mournful breaths, a black man who managed to stake his claim to the Midwest. And they were all here in spirit long before Jacques Marquette, all here long before and long after the wheat and the corn, it grew from so many souls, so many promises that were given, so many taken away, and so many proven. It was this, this collection of wayward souls who discovered the Midwest. They were there from the very beginning, 
all of them, a succession of her tired, her hungry, her poor, but surely also her huddled masses yearning to breathe free, her huddled masses struggling to breathe, her huddled black masses shot in the back as they bent into the passenger seat of a car. They too discovered America. Zachary, I'm amazed how you go from uh, the Black Hawk War to uh, Chicago politics, uh, to uh, immigration and contemporary issues in Kenosha. What is your poem really about? My poem is really about the uh, complex nature of race in the Midwest and the many contradictions, opportunities, and oppression that has defined the Midwest and racial relations in the Midwest for the past two centuries. Well, with that introduction, Steve, uh, maybe it makes the most sense for us to start with with a little bit of your experience. W- what was it like growing up as the child of immigrants from India uh, in uh, Milwaukee uh, in the 1980s, as you did? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks again for having me on the show. And Zachary, as always, I'm blown away by your poetry. And you're right about the complex nature of race in the Midwest. And Jeremy, as you referenced, you know, my parents came to uh, Wisconsin uh, not knowing uh, what type of environment it would create uh, for their children. But we were in suburban Milwaukee. And at the time, this region had about a 98% Caucasian uh, racial makeup. So needless to say, my brother and I were different. We stood out a lot um, being uh, first generation Americans and uh, sons of Indian immigrants and even frankly, just being people of color in suburban Milwaukee. And that was in the context of a larger racial and political divide that I didn't fully appreciate until I was a bit uh, probably close to the end of graduating from high school. And it was then that I started reading some of the great reporting in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and some other reports that had explained some of the larger divisions in the community. For those who are less familiar, the greater Milwaukee area is the most segregated uh, metro area in the entire country along lines of race. And you see disparities around income and housing and education uh, as well. And that tracks along political lines as well. Uh, the greater Milwaukee area is also the most politically uh, segregated metro area in the country. So you can go from you know the bluest of the blue area in downtown Milwaukee and within just a few miles uh, be in some of the reddest of the red areas in the suburban areas. They call it the wow counties. Um, the, <laughs> and, and I'm personally from one of those W's, Waukesha County. And so that has a lot to do with the experience growing up. You know, when I, I, I have a number of experiences when I was in uh, grade school where my peers uh, had couldn't figure out where to place me uh, racially or ethnically. And they would always have that uncomfortable question and they would try and say it, but do it so in a very awkward way. And they would say, so what are you? And, 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 you know, I'd explain my background and they were a little confused by it and they would just say, well, I'm American. Mm -hmm. And I would of course always respond by saying, well, I'm American too. You know, I was born uh, in this country and, you know, a bit later in, in, you know, probably middle school and high school would sometimes be, you know, teased for uh, different aspects of Indian culture, Indian food. And, the thing I took away from those experiences was that these comments would 
virtually never come from a bad place. Um, usually it was, they were trying to communicate and just didn't necessarily have the language uh, to do so. You know, I'll, I'll share one quick story. When I was in my ninth grade biology class, my teacher asked the class, um, who here has traveled outside of the country? And in a class of roughly maybe 30 or so students, two people rose their hand, myself and another student. And he asked, where have you been? And I responded that I've been to India and Europe and a number of other places. And the other person responded by saying, oh, well, I've been to the Bahamas. <laughs> and so that just gives you a little picture of just at, at that point, um, the exposure that people had to cultures outside of uh, America. And and at the end of the day, I think one of the, the things I took away from that experience, when I, especially when I got to college and I was uh, very engaged in diversity and race issues, um, is that we have to approach these conversations with a high degree of empathy and a high degree of our humanity and trying to really understand where people come from. And while I was in college, I gained a lot more of the language of how to have conversations amidst um, different races. But I also think... Um, growing up in Brookfield, it gave me a sensitivity. Uh, Brookfield is in suburban Milwaukee, uh, a, a sensitivity where um, a lot of uh, white people in Wisconsin are, are where they're coming from and, and how we can start to build some bridges of cooperation. That that's a, such a revealing uh, story of of your own experiences, Steve. Why, if we can step back a second, why is Milwaukee so segregated? People think about cities like Chicago or uh, Los Angeles as having issues of segregation. Why Milwaukee? Well, there's an interesting history there. Um, one dynamic that happened is as um, you had the Great Migration and you had um, African Americans uh, migrating north towards the Midwest, um, they arrived um, in Chicago and then later uh, in Milwaukee, uh, precisely at the time that a lot of the manufacturing base um, in this region uh, of the country was collapsing. You had more and more manufacturing jobs being uh, shipped overseas. You had the industrial sector uh, really uh, getting hollowed out. And so just as uh, African-Americans were uh, getting settled here in Milwaukee, uh, they immediately had the rug kind of uh, lifted out of their uh, out of their lives and they weren't able to get the same economic opportunities. And then you layer on top of that uh, a history of redlining, of what I call educational gerrymandering, where the districts were lined up intentionally um, to segregate along lines of race. And you have these compounding factors that ultimately led to this deep uh, segregation that you see here uh, today. And efforts to try and kind of break open uh, that segregation is often met with a lot of resistance. Uh, and because our politics is so partisan, often met with just utter partisanship. And so those are some of the factors that I think led to the segregation in Milwaukee. And it's not uncommon in, in a lot of Midwestern cities, uh, you, you, in these studies that show the most segregated metro areas in the country, you know, cities like Milwaukee, Chicago, Detroit are usually in the top five. Yeah. I mean, what's also interesting, too, is that the Midwest has in many ways been the center of progressive activism, at least in the early half of the 20th century. How do we reconcile the um, historical progressiveness of the Midwest? Um, and in many ways, Midwesterners seeing themselves as more progressive than their peers across the country with the racial tensions and divisions in Milwaukee and across the Midwest? 
Well, that's a great point, Zachary. I think, you know, I, I, I draw a lot of lessons about politics from the progressive area era in Wisconsin. And you're right that we've had this progressive history. Um, we had people like Fighting Bob LaFollette. We have Gaylord Nelson and others who had a strong uh, focus on rooting out corruption in politics and preserving the environment. Uh, and I think, you know, but, you know, the, 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 the degrees of immigration that Wisconsin had, um, particularly from uh, minority or people of color communities, um, that was a more recent phenomenon that happened, um, in my estimation, probably in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, and, and so that has, I think, presented a unique challenge, but I think, um, even if you go further back in the 20th century, when you had, um, you know, a lot of Irish and, you know, Polish and Germans, uh, coming to Milwaukee, they had their own struggles of trying to integrate and, you know, build one community in in Milwaukee. You know, I, and, and that relates to another interesting dynamic that I, I see in Wisconsin and across the Midwest, which is. You hear this phrase a lot, Midwest nice, Wisconsin nice, Wisconsin hospitality. And those dynamics are real. For anyone who's grown up, say, in the Midwest and then travels out to the coasts, you immediately sense that there's a difference in culture, a difference in welcoming and inviting, and just frankly saying hi to strangers in an elevator or on, on the sidewalk. And so Wisconsin actually does have this history of civil dialogue, of trying to um, work together across lines of difference and, uh, and, and having less vitriolic rhetoric. It's really been in the past, definitely in the past 10 years, but in some ways over the last 20 to 30 years where we've seen this worsening partisanship. And there are a lot of uh, structural forces for that. I was talking uh, just a couple of weeks ago with a someone who identifies as a progressive Republican out of that Bob LaFollette progressive era tradition in northern Wisconsin. And he was saying once the special interest money came in and infected Wisconsin politics, that's when the divisiveness really got worse and ultimately metastasized into the dyna- dynamics we're seeing, you know, over the last couple of decades. And then I think one other force came in, and that was a politics that was explicitly about division. Uh, I think the Scott Walker campaign in 2010 really exploited this dynamic. He knew that the greater Milwaukee area was highly divided along race and politics. He knew that there was a conservative radio media infrastructure uh, that he could tap into. So his political strategy, and you can make your own ethical judgment of whether this is right or wrong, uh, was focused on amping up his own base and turning out that vote as opposed to building a much wider uh, tent. And in many ways, that became the playbook for the Trump campaign in, in 2016. And so those dynamics where you have political leaders who are not um, trying to represent the entire state or bring together the state, but instead trying to represent um, their party, then further amplifies the divisions in the state. And it's, to me, just heartbreaking that the polarization narrative in Wisconsin has completely, you know, subsumed, I think, the Wisconsin nice narrative. And I think we need to turn that around. 
Absolutely. And and you've been doing a lot of work, I think, across party lines to do that, working with legislators from both parties, et cetera. Uh, Steve, why is it that Wisconsin and other Midwestern states, this is true for Michigan, Ohio and others, why is it that they seem to bat back and forth between progressive and shall we say anti-progressive, uh, almost xenophobic positions? You think about even going back earlier, the experience of having a Joe McCarthy uh, from the state of Wisconsin and then having a Gaylord Nelson mm-hmm. uh, or you know, parts of Wisconsin and other states that voted for Barack Obama and then voted for Donald Trump. How, how do we understand this flipping back and forth? Well, I think one key dynamic that has simultaneously played out during uh, that period of time, especially as you mentioned, the voters who supported Obama and then switched to Trump, the Midwest is the epicenter for that uh, voting pattern. And Wisconsin, specifically southwestern Wisconsin, which is primarily a farming region of the state, rural area, has the highest concentration of voters who supported Obama twice and then switched to Trump in 2016. And one of those important dynamics is the extent to which voters across the political spectrum have become become disenchanted uh, with the political establishment. So in a place like the Driftless in that southwestern part of Wisconsin, it's the d- political divide isn't always a left versus right. It's more of an establishment versus anti-establishment type dynamic. And one thing we saw in 2016 was a lot of voters who became really frustrated um, with the business of government uh, who might have supported Obama, were willing to take a chance uh, on Trump to really try and disrupt uh, the system. And and Trump did a very effective job uh, at reaching out to the uh, disillusioned voters uh, across our state. And that's one reason why Wisconsin became, as some people described, the tipping point state uh, in 2016. And so I think when when there's this degree of disillusionment and disenchantment, it I think starts to bring out a, a a version of ourselves where we start to um, have grievances and and resentments um, along a variety of issues. If if our farm has just closed down on on my podcast, meeting in Middle America, uh, quick plug there. Yeah, <laughs> um, great, it's a great <laughs> podcast. It, you know, we just um, interviewed uh, a, a couple writers who spend a lot of time in in the western part of the state trying to understand. Um, the real pain and and suffering uh, being faced by uh, farmers who have, in many cases, lost their farm, are being forced to find new lines of work, are losing their sense of identity. You're seeing the suicide rate among farmers just increase at alarming rates. And that disenchantment can be preyed upon um, by uh, politicians who are interested in stoking those fears and anxieties. Uh, and we have, and Jeremy, you know, you know more about this than I do, but we have a long you know, history in our country, and especially in uh, the 20th century, uh, of politicians and, and political movements that seek to prey on our, on our fears and, and our grievances. And um, our mutual friend, uh, Kathy Kramer, at the University of Wisconsin, published a really powerful book about this uh, dynamic, the politics of resentment, which I think does a good job of um, trying to explain uh, this dynamic. And so getting to your question about race, in that type of context, 
a political message about racial resentment, about economic resentment is extremely potent. And my own personal view is that in these times of disenchantment and disillusionment and uh, moments of great polarization and now political tribalism, we need political leaders who are able to embody a culture of empathy, a culture of humanity, a culture of love. And by love, I'm referring to what Dr. King referred to as the agape love. It doesn't mean you necessarily have to like everyone or have affection for everyone, um, but you have to love uh, everyone as children of God. That's what he was trying to get at. And that politics is is revolutionary in my opinion, but I think it's increasingly um, rare today. And I think uh, my the thing that keeps me hopeful is that amidst all of this turbulence, there might be a political movement that can seek to um, bring out, as Abraham Lincoln said, our better angels. And and there's such a profound point in that, as as you and I have discussed many times, and as the scholarship. Uh, I think shows very clearly social movements become successful political movements when they're built on love and hope and healing. Uh, that's what the civil rights movement was all about. It's what abolitionism uh, was about. It's what the women's movement was about in many ways. It's what the gay and lesbian and LGBTQ movement have been about. Uh, it's also what what movements for uh, economic fairness have been, been about uh, as well. Um, th- this discussion, and you've shared so much that's so valuable for us, uh, Steve, has done exactly what we like to do on this podcast, which is contextualize our current moment. How, with this rich context you've given us, you've given us a feel for it as well as the, the studied analysis of it, uh, how do you come to look at these these horrible events in Kenosha, the shooting of, of Jacob Blake, and and how do you understand that event and all the controversy about it? in this context that you've given us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When an event like this shooting of Jacob Blake happens, it's, it's, you're so right, Jeremy, it's happening in a larger context. There's a reason why thousands of people have been protesting what happened in Kenosha and have in many ways been protesting throughout the summer after the, the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others. And it's happening. Uh, it's like you have this puddle of gasoline, and then finally, you you know, you put a uh, you light a match and throw it in the gasoline, and it just lights this fire. And that's in many ways what's happening right now. People in the communities of Wisconsin and Kenosha uh, and many other communities um, feel like we've reached a breaking point in our lifetimes, uh, and that the time for action is now. Now, one of the challenges when this happens is how do we, as we were just now talking about, how do you embody a politics of humanity and empathy when people uh, are so afraid and there has been this violence? Uh, and we, we heard these unfortunate, uh, tragic stories about the killing of, of, of Jacob Blake, additional killings during the protests of people who self-identified as a militia and said they were going to keep law and order, but instead they created less law and and less order and created more chaos by killing people. Um, You know, that just stokes more fear and more anger in the community. And eventually it has a spiraling effect. Um, One thing that gives me some hope right now is that you're seeing the community trying to rebuild. um, And uh, and even today, amidst President Trump visiting the community, uh, you're seeing Jesse Jackson and other leaders trying to kind of heal the community. Um, they're doing things like giving out 
free haircuts today. Um, their community members are helping to rebuild um, businesses that were damaged um, from the, over the last couple of weeks. Um, and, and that process of rebuilding is, is a metaphor in many ways, because I think, you know, in, in these types of movements, and this is where Millennial Action Project seeks to have a unique contribution, um, is we need to have builders. We need to have people who can help once an issue has been highlighted and demonstrated across all the airwaves and across all the media, um, that we can translate that into action. And, and, and unfortunately, these calls for action, uh, and we saw recently the Milwaukee Bucks and, and the NBA, you know, um, uh, going on strike and saying the Wisconsin legislature needs to meet well, a lot of uh, NBA players and others are now realizing is that we have a broken political system. Uh, I mean, this, the moment we saw those calls, you know, I got this pit in my stomach because I was thinking they're going to see just how broken um, the Wisconsin legislature is and in many ways our, our political culture when uh, we don't have the political bridging muscles in order to overcome the deep-seated partisan divide and hatred that exists. And so when there's a moment like this um, around uh, racial injustice, or you you consider after the Parkland shooting, a moment around gun violence, uh, and people wonder, why can't we do something about this? Um, we have to uncover those reasons why our political system and in many ways the health of our democracy is not uh, what it needs to be. And what we try to do with Millennial Action Project is over the course of years and years of building relationships, of building trust, of building those political bridge building muscles, be able to start responding to um, these urgent issues and actually push bipartisan legislation over the finish line. And, and I think that's the type of po politics that we need to see more of. That's so compelling, Steve, but I, I want us to get the other side of the argument on the table and hear you respond to it. Um, as many people know, uh, Kenosha actually has um, a very strong movement of people that's long existing, right, who are very critical of those on the left and blame the political left, blame political movements, blame minorities for the difficulties they've had. The most um, <clears throat> obvious case of this is, of course, the sheriff. Uh, who I think a number of months ago, right, was recorded as saying, and, and this video people can find online, basically talking about how the problem was these uh, inappropriate people in the area of, of different backgrounds, often African-Americans, who he said were uh, undermining the city uh, by causing violence, bringing radical politics, acting in inappropriate ways. And then he blamed uh, Democratic legislators, particularly the, the new governor, for restricting uh, business and all sorts of other things. Um, that's not a caricature. That's what some say, that this, this sheriff was elected with 55% of the vote in the area. Uh, what's your response to those, to those arguments that you know, these, this is external radicalism undermining a good community of Wisconsinites that just want to go about living as they, as, they, as they want to, and people like Jacob Blake, uh, who have criminal records, shouldn't be driving around with, with knives in their vans? Well, w one thing that's, I think, tough for our entire community here is we still haven't gotten a substantive explanation from either the police or the Wisconsin Department of Justice that's investigating um, the shooting of, of why lethal force in the form of seven gunshots um, was uh, required. 
And so I, I think there, the burden um, is pretty high to um, justify that. And so far, uh, we haven't seen it. But to, to, in a broader sense to your question, Jeremy, um, to the extent that we've seen um, violence in the community, uh, we've seen confirmed reports of people coming in from outside of Kenosha to try and rough things up and, and intentionally try and stoke you know, fear in the community. And, and I think that's really, really troubling because uh, the media doesn't necessarily report on the origins of violence. They just report on the violence itself. And once that narrative gets out there, um, then it becomes extremely hard to advance efforts for uh, for racial justice. And that's exactly why um, Dr. King was so fervent about building a nonviolent movement for civil rights, because he, he knew that in order for this type of uh, reforms around racial justice to 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 move and to build a wide enough coalition for success um, that you really have to um, do so in a dignified way, in a way that doesn't um, lead to the violence and destruction, but instead the uh, a more constructive and a more creative effort that um, brings out the best in people. Um, he he. Part of this philosophy of nonviolence was to uh, make it so abundantly clear where the moral high ground is. And the moral high ground um, is around racial uh, equality. Uh, and he knew that the narratives that would emanate from, you know, protests were really important. And I think in many ways, um, with a lot of the violence and destruction that we've seen, um, the narrative is, 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 uh, is, is very, very much threatening to the prospects um, of real progress and, and real change. So yeah, I think that's, that's, um, that's a key dynamic here. And I, I think what's super important now um, as we try and rebuild from this situation um, is that we do reclaim the narrative uh, and understand that um, issues of racial justice and equality are not partisan issues. I think Democrats who try and um, demonize people on the other side and say, you know, you're all racist or you're all irredeemable uh, is not helpful either uh, because, um, because that eliminates any possibility uh, of building a bridge. Uh, so I think we need to transform the narrative. It needs to be more about constructiveness as opposed to deconstructiveness. Uh, and hopefully um, the sheriff can can see that as well. So, so what do you say, Steve? I know you've thought about this. Uh, what do you say to the store owner in Kenosha? Uh, let's say it's a white store owner who, who really isn't very political at all. Someone who's not really a Republican or a Democrat might have voted Republican last time, but you know, might have voted Democrat before. Uh, that, that person's store has been looted and, and the windows have been broken and, and um, he or she just wants to rebuild mm -hmm. and uh, is skeptical of uh, calls for political change, calls for social activism, because they seem to disrupt this struggling store owner's effort just to get his or her store, store open. And, and maybe more police force is the best way so that there's safety in downtown for that that store owner. What's your response to that position? Well, I think it's a completely reasonable position to have in that if you're a store owner, you're just trying to get by and you're barely making enough money to support your employees. And then you have all of a sudden gotten a $20,000 or $30,000 expense that you hadn't planned for, you know, then what do you do? And, and it just speaks to the importance of why we need to, um, 
we can't have any any violence happening uh, in in these protests. I understand where uh, the anger is coming from, but you know, uh, I was I was talking once with a biographer of Bobby Kennedy, trying to understand like how did Bobby Kennedy build this very unlikely diverse coalition for civil rights in 1968, and he was making this point. Uh, channeling Bobby Kennedy that we can't have safe safe streets without justice and we can't have justice without safe streets. And his point was to say to someone like the store owner, um, we can't truly have safe streets uh, until we have the presence of justice on those streets. Uh, And without that, there will continually be a risk that things can spiral uh, out of control. And, And in terms of the calls for, you know, more police or more um, you know, the National Guard stepping in, you know, to the extent that they can be helpful in in a, you know, peaceful and constructive way, uh, trying to, you know, reduce uh, the, the not only violence, but the sense of chaos on the streets, that's, that's certainly helpful. Uh, but on the other hand, there won't truly be a kind of safe street or a peaceful street until we have justice and um, that people who feel they've been, uh, people who have been, um, just violently in a literal sense or violently in a metaphorical sense um, faced with injustice by our, our society um, have some type of recourse and f- some um, pathway to a, a greater sense where they have a stake uh, in the community. So these issues are are not easy. Um, and And I think we need to get to a place where we're approaching it with a much greater sense of as I mentioned earlier, constructiveness and, and grace. And I think the voices that are so compelling right now are actually from the Blake family. Um, and you just hear the grace that you, with Jacob Blake's mom and, and his other family members, and they're talking about um, the importance of, you know, building coming and coming together as a community. Um, she quoted Lincoln as well, saying that a house divided cannot stand. Um, I think that's the mentality and the spirit that we need. So both the shop owners and the protesters uh, and the police and other members of community can all be uh, working together towards a safer street corner and the presence of justice. Uh, you're so right. I was so moved uh, hearing his his mother speak so evidently from the heart uh, in, in her moment of grief uh, that I can't imagine. Uh, calling on people to pray for everyone, to pray for um, not simply uh, her family and those who have suffered, but but to play, pray for the police officers. And, and that, as you said, that love of humanity, I think, came through in her as a voice shining amidst all the darkness. Mm-hmm. I think what she was doing is something that um, Martin Luther King III recently mentioned uh, to me uh, at our recent Future Summit for a Millennial Action Project. He was saying, I was asking him, how do you think Dr. King would respond to the polarization of this moment, both political and racial polarization? And he said, you know, I think my father would be trying to call us to a higher order, a higher order, a higher consciousness. And I think that's what Jacob Blake's mother was trying to do there. Yeah, as we as we begin to close, I wanted to ask you, um, there, there are a lot of people asking right now, why now? Right. Why are we seeing this moment right now? But. I'd like to ask why the Midwest? I mean, we've seen so much of this violence um, and so much of this tension play out in cities like Minneapolis and Kenosha and in cities like Milwaukee and Madison and Chicago, we've seen mass protests and in some cases riots. Why the Midwest? Why not other parts of the country? 
You know, Zachary, that's a good question. I, I, I don't know the exact answer to that, but I do have a few theories on it. I think, you know, when you think about Kenosha, Milwaukee, uh, Minneapolis, it is interesting that a lot of this is, the, you know, the real kind of battleground for racial justice has been in the Midwest. And I think, you know, one theory I have on that is is the context that we talked about earlier, that in many ways, this was a reckoning that needed to happen. Um, and that has been delayed for a long time in the Midwest. I mean, a community this divided is just not sustainable over the long term. And what's really striking that I've seen right now, and, and Jeremy and Zachary, I'm curious if you you agree with this, some of the images I've seen in Milwaukee and Kenosha, as well as um, from some of the protesters in Milwaukee, I don't know if you've heard, there's a group that um, marched to on foot to Washington, D.C. Uh, to participate in the anniversary of the March on Washington. Yes, yes. Uh, some of the things they faced on that journey, uh, they were sprayed with bullets. They were uh, you know, yelled at with lots of... Um, uh, very scary language. And, and you just wonder, like we're seeing in real time in real life in 2020, a lot of things that you were accustomed to seeing in black and white images in the 1950s and the 1960s. And I think what, what that is provoking right now is a true awakening uh, to understand that we have some deep seated divisions and uh, racial injustices in our country and that reckoning has come and in many ways i think it's been more acute and more delayed in the midwest at least that's that's my theory on that and and again it's just not uh sustainable over time so uh, you know i i, I think w- you know I, as i was thinking about this uh you know the group that was marching to dc um some of the things that they heard and that they saw that they reported on um you know, I think it's a big wake up call to a lot of people. And, uh, and, and I think for a lot of people who've grown up in Wisconsin, um, who learned in their history classes that, you know, the, you had the 1960s and the civil rights movement was really successful. I've heard people tell me, um, that they thought racism was solved, um, during that era of time. And now, um, they're being rudely woken up that, that that's not, uh, the reality right now. Well, and and those really thoughtful observations, I think, bring us back full circle. Um, It it does seem to me uh, that one of the the challenges, but also one of the great opportunities that you're tapping into through your work with the Millennial Action Project and all the other things you do, Steve, on the ground in Milwaukee and across the state, uh, doing more, I think, than almost anyone else I know, um, it, it seems to me that one of the issues um, is that um, the, the composition of the state and the composition of the Midwest is changing. It's one of the parts of the country that have remained whitest for the longest time. Yep. And of course, what white means has changed over time. Many of the Germans and Irish immigrants who, and Polish immigrants who came to the region were not initially considered white. But as we think of the 20th century, uh, it has, as you pointed out at the start, remained one of the whitest parts of the country as the Southwest and the coasts have become more diverse. Texas is much more diverse than than uh, Wisconsin is right now, for example. And and don't you feel that it's some in some ways the 
hyperpartisanship is a consequence of people fearing they're losing control. This is what Kathy Kramer Walsh also talks about, people mm -hmm. losing control, losing status uh, from established uh, families and established areas, but also the, the new possibility that there are so many Steve Olacaras out there, so many young people from various backgrounds who see a different future for the state. How do you negotiate those, those two elements of demographic change at this moment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I, I think you, you've had communities that are now amidst a major uh, racial uh, and economic uh, transformation. And those are, in, in my view, inextricably linked together. Because when you have, like in the Fox Valley of Wisconsin right now, you have so many paper mills that had sustained communities for decades, for maybe 40, 50, 60 years uh, that are now closing down, it's just a complete change of life, a change of your identity in many ways, um, because your, you know, your sense of work and what you contribute to is very much wrapped up you know, in your uh, identity. And then you add on top of that um, this kind of racial uh, diversification that's happening uh, as well, disproportionately, as you point out, Jeremy, in different areas, um, I think that creates uh, a sense of anxiety. And then I think you layer on top of that, you have uh, a government that is still really stuck in the past and unable to respond to the needs of the future, then it just, I think, is a recipe for disaster. But I really do believe, uh, as you point out, Jeremy, um, that a different way uh, is possible. You know, we spent two years doing uh, this program across the state of Wisconsin called Red and Blue Dialogues. And because we're a nonpartisan organization, um, not affiliated with either political party, you were truly able to reach out and involve a lot of different people who have never really been in political conversations together <laughs> in the same room. And talking about in, in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, for example, talking about the local tech colleges and their involvement in helping to retrain and reskill the local employees or talking in Green Bay about water conservation and how the entire community, Democrat, Republican, Independent, has a shared interest in a strong uh, culture of water stewardship um, brought out a different path in, in front of my eyes. And one, one, to me, it was like a glimmer of what the future could look like, what the future of our democracy uh, could look like. And once I saw those glimmers of hope, it was like intoxicating for me. I wanted a lot more of it and I wanted to help build toward uh, more of it. And, um, and so I know it's possible. And if we have, again, political groups and movements um, that aren't like their business model is not premised on conflict like so many are today, but instead focused on the issues and the solutions that can you know, help a community lift up, then I think a lot of those anxieties will kind of dissipate um, because you start to see our success kind of wrapped up in each other. We see the, as Dr. King said, this web of mutuality, that sort of spirit can rise up. And so I know it's possible, um, but it's also in many ways the harder path to go. But I think it's what a diverse democracy like America really requires right now. That's why like these fights that we're involved in with Millennial Action Project and, and the stuff that you're doing, Jeremy, and, and yourself, Zachary, I think like this is like we're fighting for the concept of 
not just American self-government, but the idea of a diverse democracy existing, not just in our lifetimes, but really thriving for many, many lifetimes uh, to come. And if you just extrapolate like the current trends, uh, eventually, as Jacob Blake's mother said, it's just going to uh, collapse uh, on on the weight of its own divisions. But I've seen this other path emerge, and I think you know by fighting this fight for a pluralistic you know system where we respect our differences and we can work across lines of difference, you know that I think is going to be a recipe for success in this democracy. You know, Steve, I, I haven't heard anyone say it as well as you just did. I think you need to keep preaching uh, about this because you're, you're, you're preaching based on, uh, first of all, a great deal of your own personal experience and sincerity, but also a great deal of wisdom from your research and all the organizational work you've done. Zachary, is is this vision that, that um, Steve lays out, a vision of a young generation embracing pluralism, embracing political activism, and reaching out with love? to those who see the world so differently, empathizing with those who come from different backgrounds uh, and, and backgrounds that often seem somewhat even offensive to the ideals of a younger, more diverse generation. Uh, does, that, does that resonate with you? Do you think that's a path forward for your generation? I think it is. I think we're moving to a point, especially as we become an even more interconnected world where we can communicate with others hundreds and thousands of miles away in, in an instant. I think we are quickly becoming a much more pluralistic uh, society, whether you like it or not. And I think what we have to recognize is that what makes our history so important is that we've gone through moments like this before, and we have found ways to move forward. And what we have to recognize is that the moment that we're in is unique, but it isn't purely unique. It is. It, it also is derived in many ways from our own history. And we have to be able to look at our history and use the lessons as Steve was doing with um, Martin Luther King Jr. and others. And we have to use those lessons to create a better future. I think that's that's also very wise, Zachary. And it's a way in which, uh, this is the theme of our podcast, uh, the way in which history matters so much by, by seeing that there's a long history, as Steve has described so well, that helps us to understand these difficult events in Kenosha and elsewhere. That also helps us to see a way out because we can recognize that these are not events that have to happen. And we can live in a different way if we can address some of these long-term issues that reflect choices of another time, making new choices and getting involved in making those new choices. Uh, Steve, you you have given us so much insight on a contemporary crisis. You've given us a way of understanding how the past relates to the present. And you've uh, shown us a pathway forward. I want to encourage all of our listeners to go to the Millennial Action Project's website, and find Steve and follow the work that Steve and, and the many other uh, wonderful people in his organization are doing in Wisconsin and, and throughout the United States. And Steve, I hope we'll have you on again soon. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And Zachary, thank you for your uh, wonderful poem, as always, and your stimulating insights and your, in, your inspiration for all of us. And of course, our biggest thanks, as always, is to our listeners. Thank you for joining us on This Is democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.